you know, I say, oh yeah, let's just change the narrative. Let's just delete the one that we don't like or rewrite it. That's hard because your whole identity is built on these stories. If I change one story, it's like dominoes. Everything else gets shifted. And then maybe I get so insecure. It's like you pull the rug out. All these years, I thought I was a certain way or all these years I believe this and now it's changing. That's very hard. So people hold on to these unproductive negative stories just because the change is so drastic and so unknown that we're fearful of that. So, and I, I'm hard on myself too, because I think you should know better. That's my story. Like you should know better because you studied this stuff and you know, blah, blah, blah. But I still get trapped in those stories and like, oh wow. And then I laugh at myself when I was writing the book. I'm writing and I'm like, who do you think you are telling people about women to go, what do you know about that? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing. So I became fascinated that I had that my own narrative. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've interviewed hundreds of women. You know this. I'm like, yeah, right. I know this. I know. And then I'm writing. And it's not only my story. I'm writing about other people too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the next thing, who do you, uh, oh my God. So it was a, that kind of cycle. But I got the book done, so I did it. <laughs> and I congratulate myself that I did it. People know that you have the ability and the power to have the kind of life that you want. And if you feel that you're missing something, figure out what that might be and you can get it. You can develop it, you can grow it, you can learn it, whatever it is. But we do have a lot more agency than I think we give ourselves credit for. It is often acknowledged how stories can help us understand each other's experiences more deeply by sharing information in a way that creates emotional connection. But there isn't as much emphasis placed on the role of our own internal stories in the way that we experience the world. Today, we're joined by writer, author, and negotiation and communication expert, Beth Fisher Yoshida, to discuss what role does narrative play in the world we end up enacting? How does it influence our sense of identity, as well as the way that we relate to others? How can we discover, truly own, and even change our internal stories? What role does that ownership play in our own empowerment journey? And finally, how does rewriting our story affect the larger system that we're a part of? What follows is a rich discussion on how the world we enact is a function of the story that we tell ourselves whether implicitly or explicitly, and that most importantly, we have the ability to craft, alter, and refresh our stories so that they empower us to be the people that we wanna be. We punctuate the conversation with the importance of recognizing that a system is made up of many individual stories coming together. And so the place to start changing a system is to first change our own stories. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us and welcome to Woven Wings Live, where we bring you wisdom and tools for vibrant living. I'm Gabe Crane, and I'm joined by my co-host Rahul Deedwania. And if you enjoy listening to us, please share our show with a friend or leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also join our newsletter, which is linked in the show description, to follow along the journey. And today's episode is called Owning and Changing Your Story. Our guest is Dr. Beth Fisher-Yoshida, 
who is the program director at Columbia University's Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution. She is a very accomplished academic and consultant, having worked for a number of years in a variety of fields, and we'll introduce her more in a moment. But we're going to be focusing today on this idea of storytelling and the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the worlds around us. And how do we take ownership of those stories, come to understand that they are there, to identify them, to own them, and ultimately to have the agency to change them. And so really rich topic. I'm excited to jump into this as a former undergraduate English major. And uh, I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. But before I do, Rahul, how are you doing today? And what are you thinking about when we approach this theme of owning and changing your story? Uh, I'm doing well, Gabe. Thank you. And uh, you know, the first thing that came to mind as I was thinking about this this morning is actually the work that we did together. Uh, if you remember from a couple of years ago, you know, I came into our work when you were my coach uh, with some narratives, uh, you know, about my life, about my professional life in particular. You know, it's just uh, in the process of selling a business that I'd been a part of for five, six years. Uh, and, and, you know, there were a lot of narratives around that entire experience, uh, many of which didn't necessarily serve me, you know, and I think it was uh, just a very empowering and interesting and exciting exercise for us to examine those narratives, you know, and that's just one example. Uh, but more generally, I've been uh, observing my own narratives again of late, you know, in some different avenues. And and it's always like interesting to me, you know, I think like the work that or, or the episode that you and I did around uh, resonance, right? And, and this idea of changing our state, right? Going from a state that's dissonant to a state that's resonant. You know, I think about that when you think about stories, in a way, I almost view that as being even more deeply embedded, right? Something that's not just in the moment, but even more deeply embedded. A story is something that we come back to, you know, over and over again. <clears throat> and it ends up being this lens uh, with which we interpret reality, uh, but also a, a lens that influences the, those states, right? That we examined and that we explored. Uh, and so in that way of looking at it, I feel like stories uh, are not just powerful, but it's like very important to look at those stories uh, that we're operating from. And often they're hidden, you know, they're not totally obvious to us. And I think that's a lost opportunity. Uh, and so this idea of first understanding the story, but then then owning it, you know, as we'll be looking at today, uh, and then using that to unlock the ability to choose the story that we want to operate from, um, I think is truly like a, almost like a paradigm shifting way of looking at ourselves, you know, looking at others and looking at the world. So, uh, yeah, very excited to, to dive into that with one of the masters, <laughs> uh, you know, with, with Beth. And so, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that Gabe and curious to hear what, what's alive for you. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. And I appreciate you bringing it back to our coaching work, because that is something that I find with the clients that I work with is um, how much stories really are predominant in the way that we experience the world. Um, you know, there is a Beth may be able to remind us me of this later of who 
this quote is attributed to, but you know, the, the world is not made of atoms, it's made of stories. Um, or Joan Didion has the famous quote that we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And as I mentioned at the outset, I was an English major as an undergraduate. And, you know, I, I think within that world, that sort of mindset or idea is common. But I always had another story that kind of questioned that or was a little cynical to that. It's like, well, that's all fine, but actually the world is made of atoms, you know, <laughs> or it is, you know, there, it is uh, scientific. <laughs> and what I, what I think my work has, um, has come to show me is that really it, there is a deep truth to what, what we're talking about here, that actually stories shape the lens through which we experience reality. Therefore, it, it shapes the reality we, we experience and how we respond. And therefore, we, we then live within the story that we, we generate through that exchange. And so really being able to understand that and gain agency over that is extremely powerful and important if we want to live happy, meaningful lives. You know, in, um, in Ren Shui, one of my teachers, Yuansa, who's a Qigong Taoist master, he teaches that the world is fundamentally comprised of energy and information. And some of our deepest understandings of physics and science reflect that as well, that ultimately there are informational patterns that shape energy and create the world that we experience. And as humans, we are extensions of that. We are doing that same same work, that same pattern building through information. And so the information that we choose is really, really important. And so, yes, in a certain way, the world really is made of stories. And I'm excited today to explore um, what kind of stories we could tell about ourselves and about the world that we want to see and uh, can, can manifest together into being. And so on that note, I do want to introduce our guest, as you said, Rahul, one of the, the experts, the masters in the field, Beth Fisher Yoshida, PhD, CCS. She is a global expert and educator in negotiation and communication. As I mentioned before, she's the director of the Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program at Columbia University. She's also a negotiation consultant for the United Nations and the CEO of the consulting agency Fisher Yoshida International. Her new book, which we'll be talking about today, is called New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation, and it helps women of all ages make successful negotiations a reality. You can learn more at BethFisherYoshida.com, which is also linked in our show description. And so on that note, Beth, it's so good to have you on our show. I'm excited to have you here to talk about storytelling, about women in relationship to that, and... Um, and first and foremost, thanks so much for being here. I'm curious if anything Rahul and I shared an intro sparked any thoughts or ideas for you off the bat. Well, thank you for having me. Are you kidding? I was listening to it going, oh, oh, and there were so many ideas that were bouncing around <laughs> my head from your conversation. Absolutely. I'll um, share, one. share one. Yeah. So when you were talking about the stories and, and how it affects your behavior and all of that, I started to think about it, you know, and I was thinking one of the things that really makes a difference about our stories and being aware of them is because we're always in a meaning making situation. We're always trying to figure out what's going on here. What does this mean to me? Am I safe? Am I not safe? All of these different questions we ask ourselves implicitly or explicitly and then I'm thinking about, well, who am I in relation to this other person since it's a relational world that we live in and we live within the communication world. So 
that was like some of the initial reactions I was having to your conversation about the stories you were both telling. Yeah. And I, I think that touches on, you know, you, you talked about how we're living inside this communication world and it's, it's relational. And I know one of the um, foundations, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to learn with you in that program at Columbia. Um, one of the theoretical foundations for that work is this theory of the coordinated management of meaning, which I know you had a lot of experience in your own background, and then you've brought it into that program. That sounds like a really complex uh, idea, the coordinated management of meeting or CMM. But I'm curious if you might be able to kind of, for folks who aren't exposed to that idea at all, just lay out some of the basic concepts and principles that could maybe shape our conversation for today. Sure. So I was just thinking I've been involved with CMM for probably 27 years. And, you know, it started as this external idea that now is just internalized. So for me, it's just living and breathing what it is. It's really about we have the agency to create the world we live in. If we have difficulty in our lives, well, I think we're partly to co-create that difficulty, which means that if we do, we also have the agency and the ability to change it and to make a difference. So there's a very empowering sense of I can make a difference in my world if I'm not happy the way it is, but there's also an incredible sense of responsibility because it is easier, less empowering, but easier to just blame somebody else or blame the system or blame the situation and say, well, I I had no choice. This is what they made me do. I couldn't do anything about it. But that's a really difficult situation, I think, because you're just giving your power away. You're just not claiming your power. And if you accept the responsibility, then the ability to do something different comes with it. And then you have to figure out, well, okay, what is it I don't like, but what is it I'm I'm able to do to make a difference? And if we can't totally change the external world that we're in, we can change our response to it. And that's the only thing we really have a sense of control over is us. And that means the more we know ourselves, the more we understand where our triggers are, the more we understand where our strengths are, and then we gravitate towards those better places. Although I do know myself and other people like to gravitate towards the challenges as well. So that's another choice though, right? That we're making. Yeah. You know, this is a concept that I've been examining a lot over the last couple of years. And I think several different ways that, you know, I've, I've started to conceptualize it, right? There's this question of how am I complicit, you know, in the in the environment that I'm in, the situations that I'm in, uh, both problematic and, you know, desirable. Uh, what is my role? Right. And I think that question has been one that's been really powerful, you know, for me to, to, to claim that agency or at least to try to come from that place. Um, but, but I think, you know, what I'm always, what I always find is difficult for me to describe when people come, you know, when I have this conversation with people, they're like, Hey, like, okay, I, I get it in theory, but, but no, look, in this situation, like so-and-so really is the problem, you know, or or like this situation really is like outside of me. And I think I'd love to um, hear from you about just like what what exactly is that connection between the way we're looking at the world or the way we're approaching a situation and what's actually happening, right? So like what role does our narrative play in the world that we end up enacting and, and, 
maybe, you know, if you have some examples, right, of what that can look like, um, that might help ground this a little bit as well. Yeah. So people always say to me, oh, but it's so difficult to say something or to do something or to disagree with somebody or to challenge, you know, and different words that they might use. And I say, yeah, you're right. It is, it is difficult and it is challenging, especially if you're not accustomed to doing it and you don't feel you have the skill set or the confidence to do it or the experience of having done it. I said, but are you happy with the way things are now? And if they say no, I'm like, okay, are you comfortable with the way things are now? And they might say no. I say, okay, so you have a choice. Do you want the discomfort of the situation you're in that's not going to change or may get worse? Or do you want the discomfort of asserting yourself and doing something differently, hoping that there might be a better outcome? So then you have to figure out, and that's the whole thing about choice is the responsibility that comes with it. You're choosing to either stay in the situation you're in or to make a difference. In my own situation, my own life, you know, I also think, okay, I don't really like this, what's going on. What am I going to do about it? And I have to say, well, how important is it to me? If it's not that important and I can live with it and it's just what it is, then fine. Because you can't negotiate everything. You can't challenge everything because then that's what you'd be doing your whole life, not getting ahead, just constantly deflecting whatever's happening around you. So I need to make conscious choices about where I want to put my energy because it's important to me. The relationship's important to me. Maybe the issue is important to me. And so that's where I divert my energy, even if it's uncomfortable. Because I also think that if I don't say something, then I am kind of like implicitly agreeing with what's happening. And if I'm not agreeing with what's happening because I haven't said anything, then I have to say something because I'm not. If I don't mind, all right, fine. This is not my battle. This is not me. Then I let it go. So we have to constantly make a choice. And you're right. Some people are the problem. But what's happened also with all of us around is we've allowed this person to be the problem for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's really good to have somebody be the target of whatever it is. Oh, that's that person's fault. You know, if that person wasn't doing this and wasn't there, then the rest of us sort of come together and camaraderie like, yeah, it's this person's fault, which means we are letting this person be that way. Or we can say, well, it's the system. And I'm like, okay, but who makes the system? Right. People make the system. People enforce the system. People interpret the system. People make meaning from the system. So if there's something we don't like in the system, which you can't do anything about when it's just this big system around you, we have to figure out what is actionable inside of that. And the first thing that's actionable is my own reaction to it. And if I get sucked into a negative dynamic, I have to recognize that and see for myself, why did I let that happen? And how can I do something different about it? Because at the end of the day, we have to live with ourselves. No matter what happens, we go home and we're still with ourselves wherever we are. So I have to make sure that I feel good about myself. And if I don't, then I have to do something about that for me at the end of the day. I, I think one of the themes that where this conversation has started to head here is like this um, prevalence of victimization. It's so easy for us to feel victimized, um, depending on our station. And I think that we have, um, in certain respect, made a lot of progress socially in naming, you mentioned system dynamics, Beth, you know, in, in naming factors of systemic oppression, for example, um, naming how different identities or groups are victims of 
um, of different circumstances or of different ways that our society is constructed. And I think on the other side of that, I hear you speaking about empowerment. You know, we're talking about owning your story, being able to change your story. So I'm curious, how do you balance those two things? How, how do you um, acknowledge and recognize the ways in which um, people do become victimized or they become wronged in in the constructs that exist in our culture, in our society, and at the same time, empower people to um, to do what you're talking about, to create the world that they want to see, to not remain stuck within this uh, mindset of, of being a victim. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really uh, important action and it's a very hard to do. And whatever we do choose to do, we really need to have a support system to replenish our energy. You know, I always think about when I watch these uh, programs or movies or read books where somebody's like a prisoner of some sort, right? They're, they're trapped in a situation, but they have the wherewithal to keep their sanity, to figure things. I mean, Mandela is an, a prime example of something like that. Like, what was it like for him to sit there all those years and to go through the potentially humiliating experience, but he didn't let that humiliate him, right? What was it that he had? What kind of strength of fortitude of spirit or character that he had that he was able to do that? So what happens inside of our own minds is so critical because I always ask myself, like, would I be able to do that? Would I have the strength to do that without knowing when the end is in sight? You don't know. You just are in this situation like suspended in time and one day goes into another. You just don't know. So I think we have to figure out a way to own our own sanity and our own agency in these situations. So if I am in a situation and I, I know I'm a, being a white woman, a white woman of privilege, then I know that I also speak from a position of privilege. I'm very aware of that. When I speak with women, and I've just come back from a couple of different workshops and working with women, it's so amazing that when you are together in your affinity group, so uh, women coming together, there's such strength in there. At the same time, they're all acknowledging when things have not gone well for them and they're, they're learning. We're all learning. I don't have everything mastered by any means. I mean, I still get trapped into certain situations and I take a step back and go, whoa, what's going on here? So we have to continuously develop our self-awareness, understand why something is a trigger. If somebody says something to me that I take offense at, I have to understand what's going on with me that I feel offended by that comment. I can give an example. There's somebody recently I'm working with and I notice a change in behavior and, I, and I'm having a reaction to that change in behavior. But then I'm wondering, was that behavior always there? Am I just interpreting it differently now? So then it's in me. It's in me to say, what am I going to do about this? Is it that I'm shifting and what's happening with me that I'm shifting my understanding of this behavior? And then regardless of my understanding, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to respond? So this is this constant play that happens in my mind with all my relationships that I have. It gets very crowded in there sometimes, <laughs> thinking about all the different conversations. But I think that when you are a representative of a group that has been perpetually discriminated against, you do have choices to make. And I think you have to figure out how to have the decision-making process for yourself about what you're willing to do or not do. I know very often I've heard people who are from disadvantaged groups say, I'm not going to be the one to educate 
the dominant group. Like that's not my responsibility. You need to get educated on your own. You need to get smart on your own. So they're not accepting the role of, oh, I have to take care of all these people around me because they don't know. No, that's that they're not accepting that. If they're really not accepting that, then they have to figure out that they're going to be with people who are the uneducated, who are maybe going to hit against them, rub against them and just hit against them in a negative way. But that's a choice that they're making, right? If they feel like, well, this person's important to me and the person has potential in a relationship, then maybe I will offer something to them so they can gain more insights. These are the choices we make all the time, which can be exhausting. And that's why I say it's really important to have support group and have a way of replenishing yourself. If it's sitting by yourself and meditating, as you did earlier, talking about getting your breath and getting centered, if it's being with other people and having a, a social event where you feel really good and energized, whatever it is, you need to know what that is to replenish yourself because there's a constant abrasiveness potentially in the world. Because even though we think we communicate well, we don't always communicate effectively or constructively with other people. Well, what I'm picking up in the way that you're talking about it, Beth, is that it's a it's a practice, right? And it's a regular, constant practice. And I was just recently revisiting uh, the nonviolent communication framework. You know, this idea of looking at a situation in an unbiased way, recognizing the feelings that are coming up within us, right? Very individual, to your point taking it from something that happened externally to, hey, what's happening within me, right? And then actually uh, understanding what the need is or the unmet need is, either for yourself or for the people around you. And then, and then you know, the, the I guess the framework uses the word request, but I think it's, to your point, like, do I want to act, right? Is there a choice? Do I want something different out of this situation? And I think it's been, um, you know, it, it, to your point, it can be very challenging at times to just constantly be making this assessment and this decision. But I think it's also very empowering, you know, and what I'd love to um, get into is, you know, if I as an individual am doing that, right, consistently, and I'm coming in and, and, and maybe I came in with a particular interpretation, but I reorient in that way, in that period of self-examination, and then turn outward from there. How does that individual process reverberate through the system? You know, what is, what, I guess, what is happening, first of all, as far as rewriting the story, you know, when we use that terminology, what does that mean here? And then how does it have a, uh, you know, a halo effect uh, throughout the system? Yeah. So recently I was um, helping celebrate somebody's advancement that they graduated from university. And uh, I had known this person for nine years and I knew a lot of the group of people for nine years. So I wanted to say something. And I, of course, I gave a little speech in Spanish, which I had to practice a lot because that's not my forte. But one of the things that um, I looked at, and it's something that I learned about when I was back doing my doctoral work, was somebody named Rupert Sheldrake, who's a biologist, and he talks about morphic resonance. And I was always so fascinated by this idea and playing around with vibrations. We talk about vibrations in the world. So an example would be that before anybody knew how to ride a bicycle, nobody could ride a bicycle. So the first person that figured out how to pedal and how to turn the wheels and how to stay afloat was really hard. But then they put that vibration of learning how to ride a bicycle or knowing how in the world. And then the second person or the third person, it became a little bit easier because that vibration was there. So one of the things I wanted this group of people to recognize is that 
when one of you succeeds, you all succeed because that person is making the vibration that much better in the world for you. And so if you're doing anything about improving communication, resolving conflicts, peace building, whatever it is, you're all benefiting. Because what I didn't want to happen was that there would be jealousy or envy that somebody's pulling ahead, you want to pull them back down. No, it's like, let's celebrate that all. So I connect that with what you're asking, because then that means I'm going to try as much as I can to surround myself with people who have that good energy. And the better I become in who I am, I naturally attract people with better quality vibrations and better energy. Now, sometimes you're in a situation where you're there and I'm thinking, okay, what's the lesson I have to learn from being in this situation with these people? Because they're really not my choice, but I need to do that for work or whatever it is, you know? And then when I'm not in that situation, but I'm choosing to stay there too and do that kind of work, then I go back and I think, what do I need to do for me to replenish myself? Because it takes so much energy, as we said earlier, to be in that world. So you have to think about knowing yourself. And I say, this is life work because every time you're interacting with a different person in a different situation about different issues, you're learning something or have the potential to learn something more about yourself because you're not the same. I like to think of it as a spiral. You may circle back around to similar topics with or the same people, but you're never exactly the same as you were that time before because you've interacted with other people in other situations. So it's mm -hmm. that constant spiral which I like to go up and not spiral down. So you spiral up building better vibrations around you, and then you get good energy back. I totally believe in that. So if I, I've always leaned towards optimism rather than pessimism, because that is just so, such a drag. It's so heavy and so, so negative. I just, I can't be in that space. I'd probably never get out of bed. I, I wonder sometimes how people who are so negative in their speaking, how they just get through the day. I'm like, how do you do it? <laughs> it's just such a drag, right? I'm thinking, you know, having that energy gives you and doing good things gives you more energy and it's just a positive spiral. So that's what I'm thinking is I choose who to be with. And if I'm in a situation that's not good for me or for whoever, I have to examine why am I in this situation? And it's a good reminder just to reflect back and even if you can't separate physically, you can still separate mentally going, okay, what's going on here? Is this really going the way I want or not? What do I do to change it? And maybe I have to take a break and leave. Maybe say, listen, I need a 10 minutes, right? And then I have to recenter and refocus myself. And I also encourage people that this is a practice you have to have all the time. You can't be in these difficult situations and say, wait a minute, what was that meditation technique I needed to do again? Because you're not going to call on it. But if it's part of who you are, then you call on it. If you notice that your breathing is shallow, you deepen your breathing. If you notice that your breathing is fast, you slow down your breathing. Whatever it is that you need to do, but you have to be attuned to it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And then it controls you rather than you controlling whatever it is. Hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, it's 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 great. Well, I, I shouldn't speak for you, Rahul, but I really enjoyed that, uh, that response. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that you were mentioning earlier, Rahul, about examples and and trying to ground some of this conversation, which uh, personally, as someone who nerds out on this stuff and loves teaching people about this stuff, I, I love this conversation. But I do think it would be helpful to have um, some more specific examples. And I'm curious, I, I think maybe we could look, Beth, at um, something in relationship to your new work, um, your new book, which I mentioned at the at the outset is New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. 
And um, I was able, when we were traveling together in Colombia last month, I was able to um, watch you partake, give a, give a speech, uh, a lecture, and then participate in a panel with um, some female scholars in Colombia at El Externado University. And I think, um, you know, there are so many, uh, so many of the themes that we have already touched on are alive very much in this experience of um, women in the workplace or women negotiating for their position, for their power, um, being a disenfranchised group, facing, um, you know, disenfranchisement in that way, uh, facing an uphill battle, and yet at the same time, creating empowerment through some of the tools that you are describing and teaching. And so, yeah, I'm curious if you want to share with us a little bit about what this book's about and how we could kind of connect and understand the themes we've been talking about through the specific example of women and um, and their their struggles and efforts to to advance in the world. Yeah, thank you for that invitation. So I have to give total credit to my publishing team who came up with the title. I did not come up with the title, but I absolutely love the title because it's just giving me so much to talk about about the book through the title alone, just the new story, new power. I'm like, Oh my God, that's so powerful, but I, I can't take credit for it, but I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so the book came about because I had been working with lots of people over the years around negotiation. And I started to notice patterns in women that were different than patterns in men, regardless of culture or what country I was in. And I always look for patterns in communication and behavior because that's where you want to figure out What's the pattern to strengthen or to interrupt and shift what the pattern is? So I noticed that there was something different. I said, hmm, what's going on here? So then I, of course, being part academic, I went to the research and the re- reading and I was saying, okay. And basically it was totally contradictory. It said this, and then it said that, and then it said this, and then it said that. I said, all right, well, I've deepened my confusion knowing that all of these things can exist simultaneously, but that's not helping me use it. Because I started my career really as a much more of a practitioner than a scholar practitioner where I am now, my first reaction is always, how can I use this? And I couldn't figure out how to use it. So, And when I say use it, I mean in teaching or in workshops or coaching. So then I said, okay, I'm going to do my own research and ask some questions. And I wasn't as interested in all of the stuff that goes wrong because you just wallow in the problems. I wanted to know what are people doing that goes well. So I interviewed hundreds of women including women in male-dominated STEM professions. And I started to capture some of their strategies and tactics, including, of course, what are their challenges. And I separated it into different groups, people with very um, low experience, like one to five years in an organizational context or the workplace, mid-career, and then people with 25 years or more. And I started to learn and I said, well, this is really good stuff. I'm not going to keep it to myself. So that's how the book, The Genesis, came about. And I did not want it to be a very academic book, meaning dry and not usable. I didn't want it sitting on a shelf. I wanted it to be used. I wanted it to be very practical. That was always my MO in writing the book. So um, there are four sections. And the first section just gives some basic concepts about negotiation, about narrative, about our brains and the neurosciences, which we know so much more about now and how that works for us. The second chapter developed because I didn't want it only to be a business book. Originally, I did. And then I said, well, no, I started learning different things. And I said, "Mm," in different conversations, that's why it's good to take a couple of years to write a book, right? You just keep morphing into something else. So in the second section, 
it's all about different contexts in the workplace, at home, in your families, in your personal relationships, just in the street. And then when I was writing it, it was the Me Too movement came very strong. And I said, I can't not pay attention in some way to the Me Too movement. I said, but oh my God, how am I going to pay attention to this? It was such a heavy topic and so nuanced. So I just came up with a chapter on negotiating in compromising situations. And then in the third section, it's all about the tools, preparation, process, post. And I, sometimes I tell people, just go to the third section and use the tools to really understand how to identify your, your narratives that you're carrying and which ones are working for you and which ones are getting in the way. And then the fourth section came about after I had written the rest of it to really go in depth into three case studies using three different contexts, taking people through the preparation process and post-negotiation flow using the tools from the book. So that's how the book came to be. And now when I'm talking about it, it's like so rich from the conversations because sometimes people, one time I was giving a book talk and somebody said to me, when is a no a no? And I said, Ooh, okay, that's a very heavy question because I went like a couple of different places with it. And I said, I'm not sure what you mean, but I'll answer it with two different ways. In the world of negotiation, people think a no is an invitation to further the conversation. So if somebody says, I need more money in my budget, I need more resources, I want to raise, you can just say, no, put the hand, no, we don't have it in our budget. And then that's a no where there's an invitation to think, okay, what else can I ask or how else can I get the resources I need? Then there's the no where if you feel emotionally, physically, psychologically unsafe, that's a firm no, and you need to exit that situation. And then I was thinking, okay, so now you're dealing with power in different contexts. And typically, like traditionally, men have held more of the power in like an organizational context. If you cut yourself off from being with this person, you also cut off potentially career opportunities. So I didn't want it to be black and white, yes or no, you engage, you don't engage. I had to think, okay, what are some of those nuances, those areas of gray? So, okay, so if you're not feeling safe and there's nothing quite tangible, but you just get that icky feeling, just take a break, call for a break, go outside, change your physical environment and just reflect on what's going on and say, okay, what, what's going on with me? Why am I feeling unsafe? What's that yuck factor? Like what's going on? So if you feel really like, no, I don't feel safe, then you go and you say, like to end the conversation now, let's pick it up another time. And then you think of other things. Maybe I need somebody else in the room with me. Maybe I need to think of other ways of accessing the power in the organization. Or maybe you say, you know what, maybe it's just me. Maybe he doesn't mean anything. Let me see what happens with the flow of the conversation. So I really wanted to give people options about what they do in those yucky situations, because not everything is a cold, just cut Sometimes you have to figure it out. Now, if you're unsafe, absolutely, you don't stay in that situation. That's a firm no. So then the case studies don't really go into those compromising situations, but talk about a family dynamic, which, you know, in your family with your siblings, you have old stories that you carry about each other. And if you don't spend the time to mature those stories, even though you have matured as adults, you're bringing those childhood stories, those sibling stories about, well, you were never responsible, you were over-responsible and controlling, or all those old stories are still alive for you, but maybe they need to be modified. And there's a workplace situation and also um, an intimate relationship situation. So that's how the book came to be, and that's a, hopefully a practical book. But now, of course, the more I present about the book, I've become interested in doing a follow-up book, which was not my plan originally, doing follow-up <laughs> research book, but I haven't allowed myself to dive into the proposal for that yet because I need to finish up some other things before I throw myself into that next project.
the the work is never done <laughs> but no it's never done i thought that was my like maybe my last academically oriented book but no i'm into novel writing but nope i have another book in me on negotiation so i'm going to go yeah there. yeah no what, what what i love about your approach beth is that it, it you know recognizes the complexity of a lot of these situations but is always oriented towards what can I do about it? You know, and, and yes, in a, in a manner of still feeling safe and doing so in a way that's appropriate for any given person. But what I was just thinking back to was just a week ago, um, maybe two weeks ago, uh, I read this article in the New Yorker called why everyone feels like they're faking it, you know, and it was an article basically revisiting the idea or the concept of imposter syndrome, uh, which is now Almost, I think the 50th anniversary of that idea, uh, you know, was just this year, <clears throat> and the the whole article, right, goes into this exploration of and it interviews the people who came up with it, and they're like, yeah, like there are ways in which it has been helpful because it was a common experience. It is something that uh, people come back around to. I know I use that term quite often, right? And really, at its core, it's it's a story right? Imposter syndrome or what they initially intended was an imposter phenomena is is a story about yourself, right? And feeling like a fraud or feeling like you don't belong. Uh, but then where the article goes after that is how even the original creators feel that it's kind of taken on too much of a life of its own, you know, and that it was never meant to be this thing that basically puts the onus on the person that, hey, you're the one feeling like the imposter. It has nothing to do with anything outside of you. And a lot of the criticism around around it has been, uh, you know, from people who've said, hey, like, no, there actually are these systemic things, right, that are getting in the way. So to go to, go to what Gabe was saying earlier, like, there actually are situations where people are victims. You know, it's not all just in your head. And it was interesting. Like I've been reflecting on that quite a bit. And I think it's very related to what we're talking about here. Cause I was like, even if you're in that place where you truly are in a oppressive system, what is the choice that you have? You know, and, and, and the choice I feel is new story, new power. You know, it, it feels like that's, that's what is available as far as what you can do. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to, put all that out in front of you and get a sense for like what part of that, you know, resonates with you or is there like a nuance in there that, that maybe I'm missing in the way that I'm thinking about it. Uh, cause, cause yeah, I think to me, I'm like, yeah, like the, the power lies in revisiting that narrative, whether it's coming from the outside, whether it's coming from within almost doesn't matter, you know, it's kind of where, where my mind is gone, but curious what you think. Yeah. So I think that, uh, an accompanying comment like fake it till you make it <laughs> comes out of that imposter syndrome thing where people, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. And people have different attitudes about it, different levels of confidence. You know, it's like people who don't have the confidence will not fake it till they make it because they want to make sure they know everything before they go into a situation. And other people who have confidence think, you know what, I believe in myself. I, I know that it'll come to me at some point. I'll figure it out, whatever it is. When I interviewed women in my research, there were some women who, especially the ones who were junior, who said, I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough comp you know, competence. I don't know. I don't know. And so they were more timid about 
going forward. And I think that, you know, even if you have confidence, sometimes uh, the response of people around you can make you question whether you're on the right track or not. So many years ago, I lived in Japan. And when I first started learning some Japanese, I was not secure in my speaking of Japanese. And so if people would like, eh? And they said like, what, what are you saying? And then I, I think, oh my God, I blew it. And then I'm like, help somebody translate this. And then I started to learn and I, and I knew some things I was saying were correct. I just knew they were correct. And then when the person wouldn't understand me, I thought, okay, that's because I don't look Japanese. They block that this face can say something Japanese. So they, they don't hear what I'm saying. But then I started to shift because I knew that. So, you know, and then women were saying like all these things. And then I think that one of the things um, has to be where you have to figure out what are the supports I need in those situations. So it's very often at meetings, people who don't have the confidence or feel underrepresented second guess themselves about what they know. So maybe you need to like tag team with somebody, somebody else in a room. So if there are two women in a meeting, maybe they tag team or maybe with a male ally, you tag team. And it's like, I say something and I know from past experience, people are not going to hear me or they're not going to recognize or value my contribution. And then my partner says something, yeah, well, what Beth just said really made sense because, and then they build on it because they have some credit. So you start to tag team and get support from each other. And I think that helps shift the dynamic. But it goes back to as long as we allow things to exist the way they are, then they stay the way they are. And you you never gain that voice. So we have to think about what are the battles we want to take on. And I, ha- I hate to frame it as a battle, but it still is. What are the challenges we need to take on in order to make that change? And eventually, if you get a critical mass, then it sort of tips, like the tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell talked about, just shifts into a new paradigm. And I, I hope that, you know, sometimes you read all these studies about competitiveness and collaboration in people and what is their innate nature. And I don't want to believe that we are innately competitive and that whoever the underdog is now, that eventually somebody else will be an underdog. If we finally raise this underdog up, will somebody else be the underdog? Then I, I don't want to think that way. You know, I, I don't like to, but I don't know, you know, because I come from a mindset of abundance and I believe there's enough for everybody in the world of whatever it is. I think we have poor distribution because some people are hoarding resources of whatever it is and some people are depleted and maybe they're using up more than they have. So there's an imbalance, I think, in the distribution. But I think there's enough that we can all share power, although some people feel fearful of losing power if somebody else gains more power. So one of the themes I'm hearing running through this conversation is this idea of exhaustion. And the, you know, we kind of, there's the, there's the potential or the capacity to shape our own stories, to take on responsibility for changing things. Um, You know, the example you gave of, you know, a woman in a board meeting not being heard. Okay, there are strategies to figure it out, to get support. That, those strategies require energy and they require a certain tenaciousness to, pursue it. And I think as we're having that conversation, you know, I'm hearing that voice, that part of me that's uh, like exhausted by it, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, like then I have to do this. You know, I, it's like a never ending um, battle. It's a never, as you said, it's a never ending climb up the hill and it's exhausting. And I just want to be 
or I don't want to be, but it feels inevitable that I'm going to get knocked back down to the bottom of the mountain. And I can understand based on our conversation that that's a story. That's a story that I'm telling myself um, and it can change. But I'm curious, Beth, if you have, um, what what are some stories that can help us get resourced um, in the face of that exhaustion? Um, when we are feeling victimized, when we're feeling like it's not fair, like we're part of the disenfranchised group, we are the faker, we're the imposter, and I don't have that, I, I know I need to get support, but I don't have it, I don't know how to find it, I don't have the energy to find it. What can we tell ourselves? How, how do we change within that difficult space to start tapping into that abundance that you are describing, that, that sense of possibility um, when it gets really hard? So answer a couple of different ways. So one is, I think it's okay to get upset and depressed sometimes. I give myself 20 minutes. And so I'm like, oh, it's too much. And I do, I give myself 20, and it's just this thing where I have this internal clock and after 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, stop it, grow up. And then I go super into action. Like I, boom, get this energized thing, but I allow myself to wallow in whatever it is because it's not good. Uh, I started to become very interested in the neurosciences too. And in the book, I do talk about this a little bit. So very often, most people, especially women who I've worked with, when you uh, mention the word negotiation, they go, oh, I'm not good at negotiation. I'm not good at negotiating. So right away, they have this story that they're not good negotiators. And then what happens is, you know, that heavy in theory about neurons that fire together, wire together. So they've paired negotiation in their minds with a negative adjective, something failure, not good, uh, loser, whatever, whatever it is, right? And so that's a very strong habit or pattern that they've created in their brain. So what I'm saying is, why don't you rewire a new pair? What about you prepare? And here are some ways to prepare, right? I go in the book. And then what's happening is you congratulate yourself for showing up. Even if it's a failure negotiation, you don't get what you want, you don't get the outcomes, but you are happy that you showed up. That's a, that's a small step because you're not winning the negotiation. So instead of only looking at the ultimate fabulous outcome, what about taking a step back and just that first step and just congratulate yourself for showing up? So you do the work, you make the effort, you do the preparation and you go in. And then that means you have to frame that negotiation as just getting there. Or the second one is just starting to establish rapport. So it's a whole series of steps that you go through. The people say maybe baby steps, whole series of steps you go through to get ultimately where you want to go. You may or may not get there, but you started to change the pattern in your brain with like a physical pattern inside your brain. And then you're changing that story too, because now it's not a story of failure. It's a story of, wow, I prepared, I can do it. I know how to, I know how to access tools that I need or wow, I showed up. I got to the room. I opened the door. I sat down and I made it to the room. That's a story of success. And then I asked people like, well, don't go out and do the most challenging negotiation with the most challenging person. Just start with something really minor, but be happy and I think in general, we're too hard on ourselves. We don't congratulate ourselves and celebrate these wins. And I really, I was thinking about that recently too. Like I'm really into celebration. <laughs> I'm really into celebrating and honoring every little thing because life is short. And I believe that you have to have the fun factor in there. And so you have to have fun and you have to celebrate. It's energizing whatever way 
you want to celebrate, but it's congratulating yourself because these things can be challenging. You know, I say, oh yeah, let's just change the narrative. Let's just delete the one that we don't like or rewrite it. Now, that's hard because your whole identity is built on these stories. If I change one story, it's like dominoes. Everything else gets shifted. And then maybe I get so insecure. It's like you pull the rug out. All these years, I thought I was a certain way or all these years, I believe this. And now it's changing. That's very hard. So people hold on to these unproductive negative stories just because the change is so drastic and so unknown that we're fearful of that. So, and I, I'm hard on myself too, because I think you should know better. That's my story. Like you should know better because you study this stuff and you know, blah, blah, blah. But I still get trapped in those stories and like, oh, wow. And then I laugh at myself when I was writing the book. I'm writing and I'm like, who do you think you are telling people about women? They're going, what do you know about that? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing. So I became fascinated that I had that my own narrative. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've interviewed hundreds of women. You know this. I'm like, yeah, right. I know this. I know. And then I'm writing. And it's not only my story. I'm writing about other people too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then the next day, who do you, like, oh my God. So it was a, that kind of cycle but I got the book done, so I did it. <laughs> and I congratulate myself that I did it. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of want to play back because that what you just shared there, I think, it felt like the entire life cycle of owning and changing your story. You know, and, and I think what I'm what I'm hearing there is step one goes back to that awareness, that attunement, right? Like, hey, this is this is the story that's present right now, you know, in whatever situation that's there. Um, and then there's an evaluation of, hey, is this the story that I want to be operating from, right? Maybe it was a story that served me in, in some previous part of my life or uh, in, you know, it, it's a story that's been with me my entire life, but it's not the one that I need now, right? And so if that evaluation point comes, that's that point of, ownership, right? Like, hey, this is a story. Do I want it? Do I not want it? I'm going to own wherever it goes from here. And then there's the piece of if we decide that we want to change it, right, and change that story, there's a way to do it that doesn't have to be like an earthquake where we fall into the crack, right? What I loved in the example that you're using is it can be very gradual, right? And it can be deliberate. Um, it can be methodical or just whatever it is. It can be slowly pushing the boundary. And, and there's this, um, you know, book, uh, Atomic Habits that, that's gotten really popular. And one of my favorite quotes from that book is this idea that every action we take is a vote for the type of person that we want to be, right? Or every, I think in this case, every narrative, right, that we retell ourselves or reinforce is a vote for the story that we operate from. And what I heard and what you were saying is, hey, when we're changing our narrative, we can keep casting a vote one at a time, you know, and it can be a vote for something small, just showing up, you know, just, just taking a chance. Um, and over time, that builds, right? And the identity transformation, the story transformation follows. So yeah, I just wanted to play that back and see if that um, if I'm tracking that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm watching a program now too. And so the program where there's like an addiction there and then 
you move ahead and you try to change and sometimes you slip back, right? Because we don't always move ahead and stay ahead. We sometimes slide back. So maybe you practice and you do your negotiation and things are going well and then you have a bad day, you have a bad negotiation. Allow yourself that and then say, okay, what can I do differently next time? And then move ahead again. So we have to constantly think about ways to motivate ourselves. Some people have a very strong intrinsic sense of motivation. They know what they want and they're very determined. And a lot of us get different kinds of extrinsic motivation. So whatever it is, it almost doesn't matter sometimes as long as you figure out what's the source of my motivation, what keeps me in it, keeps me in it. Because I think that at the end of the day, the sooner we start, the better. It's easier. Every time you don't start, it's that much harder, I think, to start. And so I think it's an important thing. But yeah, gradual, celebrate the small wins. Um. I love the the whole conversation. The last several minutes of conversation have been awesome and very rich. Uh, beautiful to listen to both of you. And I'm thinking about a couple things here. One is that so far we've really centered this conversation around the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves um, and how we change those to make change, you know, in our lives. Um, and then we've touched on also these systemic factors. This. Uh, these systemic injustices, these experiences of oppression or imbalance that also exist. And, you know, in learning with you in the past, Beth, I I think I, I'm going to assume, I, I think you would say that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, those those systemic factors are created through a bunch of individual stories. It's that, that it gets built up through all of us kind of participating in that um, consciously and unconsciously. And then we create that and we play it back to ourselves and suffer from it. Um, I'm curious about if we turn the locus from ourselves to one another or towards the system, how, how can we become better allies to one another? You know, what, what are the stories that we can tell about what life is about, what it is to be a human together that um, make it easier for people, for each of us individually to do this work to to change our own personal stories, and I I'm thinking a, a lot about what you've shared around your personal philosophy and outlook, your your viewpoint on optimism and on abundance. Um, how do those? And and I I have a little note in here that I'm I got to ask you about spirituality on this show since it's not something you usually explore, but you know. What are these um, these kind of bigger stories we tell about not just ourselves but the world and one another? And what's your perspective on that about how we um, what what we can tell there that can make life for each other and doing this process a little bit easier? Yeah. So what comes to mind is I was having a conversation recently, and somebody said, "Well, I'm not judgmental," and I wasn't the poker face I wanted to be, and I guess I made a face. And <laughs> What's the face? I'm like, well, you know, we're all judgmental. <laughs> we have to own that, right? So we all judge, and I think we judge in others what we're not happy with in ourselves. And so if you're talking mm. about spirituality, but the whole idea of having a spirit of generosity and giving people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and then for me, what's helped me over the years is looking at people who maybe make bad comments or um, just make things hard for other people and I just think, I'm like, wow, they must be really having a hard time. So I kind of have like compassion for them 
that they're so miserable to other people because I'm thinking the only way you would really want to be miserable to somebody else is if you're miserable in yourself. I don't think happy people or people who are content and satisfied and centered, I don't think people in that state will harm other people. I just don't believe that. So I think you have to have some inadequate feeling about yourself that transfers to other people. And unfortunately, some people use the methodology of knocking other people down so they can feel more elevated, which I don't, of course, agree with, but that's what happens. So, you know, sometimes even when people are really offensive to me, I'm like, oof, my goodness, you know, I just think like, wow, what made that person that way? That's what I'm thinking about. Like, what knocks along the way has that person has had? And I think, you know what? I do believe that we're all born into this world to figure some stuff out and we have to figure it out or we get born again. So with my first husband, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to make this work because that's why I'm here and I'm not coming back to do this all over again. So then, of course, one day I realized, oh, wow, you know, that's not a healthy frame. And, and then I just, it's like this realization. It was almost like a freeing. I just said, wow, number one, not everything can be fixed. And number two, I can't fix everything. And I was like, wow, I don't even know how that realization happened to me. But I, I just felt this burden lift off of me. And I remember that feeling. And I thought, wow, it's okay to not have a successful marriage because part of it was and I don't have to hold on to the disaster and I don't have to blend it all together as something terrible because I have two beautiful girls from it and so many other wonderful things, but I can be okay. But that took a while for me to admit that because I was the person who was going to fix everything in the world and to accept that and say, wow, okay. So maybe part of my learning was to let go of certain things and not try to control certain things. So then that helped me in that way. And for me, the whole idea that there's way more to life than just material things, because every once in a while, I used to say to myself, like, what if, what if you lost, like, every material thing was gone? I say, okay, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be happy with it to be on the street and out of home or anything else, but, but I wouldn't be totally out of my mind about it because I'd figure it out. I'd figure out a way to move forward because what at the end of the day, what's the most important thing? And the most important thing is having loving relationships for me, right? So with friends, with family, with students, colleagues, whatever it is, having those generative loving relationships at the end of the day is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how much money I have or how many pairs of shoes I have or something like that. That's not the most important thing. It doesn't mean I don't like to go shopping and things, but it just means that that's not where I get my deepest pleasure from. So recognizing that was a big deal for me. So I do believe that we do have spiritual reincarnation and I believe that we come back and we figure things out and the stuff that we haven't figured out, we come back and try to figure it out. So my good fortune in this life also comes from my experiences in the past and my bad fortune comes from things I may have done in the past as well that I have to figure out and work out. So many rich concepts, Beth, in what you just said there. And, and I'm just tying it back to some of my own experience. Um, I think for one, you know, even the the idea of optimism, right, that you've talked about, I feel like can, can or just this idea, you know, I think the way you were talking about earlier, like the trope of hurt people, hurt people, right, was coming to mind. And you're saying, hey, if somebody's acting a certain way, what's going on in their world, right? And, and I think it's, it's interesting because underlying that is this idea that, hey, 
people are fundamentally good, right? And not everybody believes that. And I think something like that, like if that becomes a foundational part of our belief system, it really influences the way that we show up, uh, right, to these situations and whether we're able to channel a generosity of spirit or not. Uh, You know, the other idea that was coming up for me as you were talking about this idea of you know wanting to control or being attached to a particular outcome, I mean, this year has been a big year for me of revisiting and, and deepening my connection with the Bhagavad Gita. And like one of the central tenets of the Bhagavad Gita, um, in addition to reincarnation, is actually this idea that like righteous action is our duty and, and outcome is not our concern at all, right? That all we should really do is show up the way we want to show up um, and do what feels right, but actually not be attached, you know, to what what happens after that and to be okay and to let go and to surrender. And I think these are all like powerful, you know, age-old ideas. And I think the third one is what you said around relationships. You know, I think I I remember even in my uh, high school graduation, the speech that was given by uh, the assistant principal at the time was, remember, life's riches are in the relationships, you know, and it's this idea that we're we're around, right, time and time again. Um, And yet, our stories tend to drift from from all of these points, right? Even taking something like uh, the relationships one, I feel like, you know, I think about the people in my life, uh, and we, including myself, get caught up in different stories, right? Like, oh, I really have to achieve X, Y, Z. I really need to do, uh, you know, A, B, C, and that's what matters. And, and so all of this, I think, is building to this idea of uh, sort of two-part question. You know, one is building on what you said, what is your take more broadly on the role of uh, either spiritual grounding or just defined, articulated principles or values, you know, for, for any given person in the narratives that they hold and in their ability to rewrite their narratives. Um, so that's question one. And then question two is how do we stay aware, you know, when we're drifting from, from even the narratives that we hold deeply or that we believe in, but that we often lose sight of? Hmm. Two big questions. So I think the first one about the values we hold you know, I, I think it's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to be achievement oriented as long as you're not harming other people. So if you value relationships, then I think there has to be an element of flexibility as well, because you may set out in a certain direction, but you have to, like they say, read the room. You have to see what, what's the reaction to others around me and how do I adapt to that And I don't think that's losing any authenticity and who you are and being centered because if you care about yourself and you care about others around you and you care about the world, then I think you naturally have that ability to do that. But it's something that has to be refined and honed over the years so that we don't get selfish and only self-centered and only interested in self. Because I think that, yeah, of course you can be interested in yourself, but you should be interested in others too. And it reminds me of there's something in the Kabbalah which talks about three columns. And one is that you give, one is that you receive, and one is that you receive to give. And I love that concept. And if you 
only received, then that's kind of like, and I, I don't want to misquote the Kabbalah, but it's kind of like the way I interpret it is being just greedy and just take, 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 and never give and don't let others benefit around you. And the um, giving without replenishing your resources, you burn out, you drain yourself, you don't have. But the whole idea about being a vessel and that you receive to give, I love that concept so much. And I feel that's how I live my life. I feel I've been very blessed and I, and I like being generous with others and I like to give without depleting. So I need to get, I need to work hard, whatever I need to do to be able to receive whatever it is I'm receiving so that I can also share it because there's such joy in sharing and there's joy in watching other people grow. And you know that you had a part in it, that you're not all it, but you had a part in that. That to me is just so rewarding and so replenishing that it just keeps that cycle going. And I totally forgot your second question. <laughs> the, the second question is just about how do we stay aware of when we oh, yeah. drift, right? When we drift from these narratives. Yeah. I think you have to have a practice. I think it has to be part of your discipline. So if that's at the end of every day, the end of every week, whatever it is you do, you need to sit quietly and just reflect. Maybe you journal, maybe you draw, maybe you just sit, sip a glass of wine, whatever it is, there has to be some time for self where you're just inside yourself and just reflect back on, you know, did I do good deeds today? Did I do something well? Did somebody benefit from me? What happened in these interactions? Where am I going next and all that? So it can be very literal or it can be just in general, just a feeling. You know, I'm not a detail-oriented person. I'm a big picture person. So I go a lot with what's my gut feeling about things. And, and then I try to figure out, okay, why do I have that feeling for better or worse? Like what actually happened? What was the interaction or a transaction that happened that made me feel this way. And I reflect back on it and I think like, are there other ways of interpreting that situation? Because if I'm, especially if I'm feeling a strong emotion either anyway. So if I'm feeling really something strong in a negative way, I'm like, well, what is going on here? Like, why am I feeling that way? Or super related. Like sometimes I'll wake up and I'll be so excited. I'm like, why am I so happy? Like what, what's going on right now? Because it's out of the ordinary. It's like not my, my steady keel. It's like something beyond. And I go, oh yeah, right. Today's a day or something's happening. Something exciting. That's really motivating. Or I've made progress in something or I'm going to see somebody, whatever it is. So just constantly having a habit of getting in touch with yourself for whatever frequency is good for you. I think that's what keeps you on track and that's what keeps you you know, on track to really gain what you want to gain, what you've set out for yourself or modify what your direction is because you have new information now that maybe you want to shift a little bit in your direction. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about spirituality, Beth, is because you mentioned it's not something you usually are asked about. It's not something you usually talk about. And obviously, you're working within the worlds of social sciences, consulting, conflict resolution. And I think one thing we try to bridge on this show is the interrelationship of those kind of different worlds. And I, I think when people think about spirituality, which I'll kind of, I'm going to, for the purpose of this question, I'm going to lump in these ideas of the spirit of generosity, forgiveness, having tolerance, being optimistic. Those, those are all kind of um, spiritual values, for, for lack of a better word. word. And th there's no, uh, I, I think spirituality can feel very diffuse, or what does it, you know, it, it's spirit, it doesn't really have an as a grounding in something. And there's no proof 
you know, if I take this hard, cynical uh, vantage point on this, there's no proof that any of these things are helpful or valuable, or it's just a choice that you make. And then, you know, but I, I think what I, what I love about the marriage of what we try to explore in the show, what I hear you expressing inside yourself in your own viewpoint is that actually from a scientific vantage point, there is value to these things. This is not just some diffuse idea uh, that, you know, might affect the world or might not. It, it's the difference between the kind of like living within a world of possibility a world of connection, a world of hope, and living in a world of um, not so nice things. Uh, you know, I could go down the list of, of negative attributes or painful attributes. And so I guess I'm curious, having asked you about spirituality, if I could ask you to put back on your social scientist hat for a moment and share, you know, from that vantage point, what value do you see or importance do you see on creating a reflective practice, for example, on cultivating these kinds of values in your life? And how does it shape your ability to write stories and own your story, the ability to create the world you want to see in yourself and those around you? Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of everything I do. I don't think I name it that way all the time because um, people have preconceived notions about what it is and I don't want to alienate. I want to engage. And so I don't lead with that. But if you think about like when I do workshops or classes, you know, I think at the end of the day, do you feel good about yourself? And I will ask things like that to people. And I'll say, you know, it's talking about empathy and caring for others and creating a culture of kindness or supporting each other. And um, the whole idea about power with, when I talk about power and having power with other people, that there's enough for everybody. And when they gain, you gain, you gain, they gain and all of that. So indirectly, it's all in a lot of what I do there. And when I ask people to journal or reflect on things, you know, not only reflect on what happened, but then what does that mean to you? How do you make meaning out of that? And then how do you use that to lead your life going forward? So just being in the field of conflict resolution, it's spiritual because uh, I'm not I'm not taking an orientation of win-lose. I'm trying to take an orientation of let's understand what's going on and why we're in the situation to begin with and where do we want to go and what's the gap and how do we get there. And when you think about capacity building, I'm thinking about people having a better quality of life and being better to themselves and others. So there's a spiritual thread, I think, through all of it. And whatever it takes for your own reflective practice, that's getting in touch with yourself. I think too many people are not and they have no idea what it is that gives them energy. So you need to think about as part of the self-awareness journey, like how do you get energized? And I don't only mean from like, you know, an MBTI thing, like I said, from external people or internal, but what do you need to do? So I give so much energy in interaction with people. At the end of the day, I just want to sit by myself. I love being home alone. I just love just sitting and doing whatever I want. And then I engage again, but I need that time of replenishment. At the same time, when I'm with people I really enjoy and and I'm in a social situation, then I'm great in that situation too, as long as I don't deplete my energy and I just need the balance. I need to figure out what's my balance. And as I've gotten older, my balance has changed to be uh, more a little more internal than I was before. Before I was totally out there social all the time. And now I'm like, okay, it's enough because I just... I, I don't want to deplete myself and get sick because I think that's what happens is people get sick physically, emotionally. I've seen this when I work in really toxic environments in organizations. 
people get emotionally and physically sick and there's absenteeism and just, I mean, I interviewed different people. One time somebody believes that she got cancer from her work environment. I don't know if that's true or not. That's her belief system that she got so sick because it's so toxic, but she also had a victim in her story about, and nobody did anything about it. Nobody helped me and nobody changed the environment. You know, so there's a lot of stuff mixed up there, but I think at the end of the day, I'm like, my God, you just want to go take a shower because it's so difficult and so toxic. So we need to own our own health. Of course you can get support from elsewhere, but you need to own that. And that means you need to figure out what it is you need to do that helps you feel good at the end of the day. Because that's when you're of value to yourself and others. If you're sick, it's a, you're a burden on yourself and others. It's not, it's not a good place to be. Uh, well, Beth, I want to just pause here, you know, looking at time as well, and just, uh, just thank you for such a like far-reaching conversation. And you know, I can I can feel my neurons just firing right now, <laughs> like wanting to go out and put you know put a number of the things that we talked about uh, into motion or to you know augment my own practices uh, with some of the insights and, and principles that we explored today. And so I'm just very appreciative you know, of, of your taking us there and sharing your perspective. And, you know, I think uh, as we start to approach close out, uh, this is a very broad question, but uh, if you had one takeaway, you know, that you wanted to leave our listeners with, uh, just as we start to wrap, uh, curious what that would be. And, uh, you know, you can take it in any direction that you feel. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you for creating the environment to have this kind of conversation. It's a nice, safe space. The one thing I would do is, you know, just let people know that you have the ability and the power to have the kind of life that you want. And if you feel that you're missing something, figure out what that might be and you can get it. You can develop it. You can grow it. You can learn it, whatever it is. But we do have a lot more agency than I think we give ourselves credit for. That's how I would close out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Beth. And um, for those who have been listening to us today, thanks for joining us on this journey and hope and trust that it gives you a lot of uh, ideas and specific tools that you can use to improve your own lives. And so on that note, if you enjoy listening to us, again, please do share our work with a friend, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and join our newsletter to follow along the journey information about Beth, about her new book, about her work are all available in the show description. So please check it out and drop us a line. Thanks very much. And we will see you next time for another episode of Woven Wings Live. Take care.